Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Joining me at this time, my good friend, fellow University of Tennessean over there in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Mr. Stats by Will. Will, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. Uh, my plan uh, to be American Nathan Fielder by instituting uh, beer sales at 8 a.m. in Louisiana this Saturday uh, is going really well. So uh, beer sales are up. I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like People have been saying like LSU's going to get up for that. But the 11 a.m., man, that's tough. That is a tough look. I, I don't think time matters as much as people believe it does. If mm. you're like a Central or East Coast, like if you were a Stanford coming, then yes. But mm. though I think Stanford would have a problem basically anywhere now. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. I do think it's much more of a coin flip than a lot of UT fans seem to be indicating. Well, I could go on and on about that, but that is uh, for a different podcast. Well, we'll see. Yes. We shall see how it goes. <laughs> um, on this particular podcast where we ostensibly talk about college basketball, my friend, uh, we kick things off with our wrong coach, wrong team series that uh, I was thinking about this week of like, who would be a good fit this week? And we haven't done this, pre- uh, this coach yet, and he has been there for a sneaky long time now uh and you know this program now in the big 12 the big 12 the best college basketball they're trying to be the goat college basketball pro- uh just conference uh with their hires i don't know if you saw all the pistons front office folks who just got hired to the big 12 uh conference staff like they're they're dipping their toes and they're going all in kansas wins and just they're they're going full basketball uh for the future of the big 12 and not a bad uh idea uh, when you look at where they're going and who they already have in the conference, and we touched on that a little bit, but one team that kind of has been under the radar in the conference that I am curious, Jamie Dixon, uh, now been at TCU for a little bit. What do you make of Jamie Dixon to this point at TCU, and do you still think he is the right guy for this program at this moment? This one's a little complicated. Um I think, so I'm going to say up front, I think he's the right coach for them because he is an alumnus, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like you're going to get a better alumnus for the job as far as I know than Jamie Dixon. That's about as good as it's possibly going to get. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of his actual success there, it's a little complicated. I I think he's both been better than the numbers might immediately indicate, and he still has some room for improvement. So, I mean, he's unquestionably the most successful coach they've had there in decades. They have two tournament bids in the last five years that's more than they had in the 30 years prior to him being hired won 20 plus games four times they have a real identity which a lot of teams don't Mm -hmm. uh you know they're nasty on the boards really tough on defense overall a difficult team to play against they kind of sort of created the the like how iowa state made their little mini run this year that was a very tcu basketball team Mm -hmm. very jamie dixon hard-nosed not really a team you're excited to play uh, style. I think all of that's really good. Um, and as a reminder, the actual question of is he the right guy, I think it's more or less proven itself to have an answer of yes. But there is the room for improvement. So since Dixon got there, you know, Bart Torvik's got his thing on his site where you can, you know, basically select certain years of time and see, you know, like, how has this program performed against the rest of their conference? And, you know, Dixon's six years, for example. 
They're the eighth best program in the Big 12, which is not, hmm. that sounds worse than it is because every Big 12 program ranks 53rd or better, uh, which is insane. That's like hmm. all 10 teams on average being no worse than bubble teams, which is, that, that's unreal consistency. Mm-hmm. It's a brutal conference to try and win in unless you're Kansas. That being said, yeah. they've had real success and they've not really capitalized on it at all in recruiting. Uh, and I know like, you know, TCU, not really a traditional basketball recruiting hotbed or anything, but, uh, the last two recruiting classes, uh, eighth, 10th and ninth in the big 12. Mm. Um, if it was a uniquely tough place to recruit to, I might have some sympathy. Uh, but one seeing their success in the football side doesn't make me, you know, feel quite as much on that. And then two, Iowa state has three blue chip recruits committed for this next class. Kansas state has multiple four stars, West Virginia, not exactly a place the average recruit is like jumping to move to necessarily regularly out recruits TCU. But that all being said, uh, it's aside from like Chris Beard, I would have a hard time naming a coach out there who's worked the transfer transfer portal as well as he has. Hmm. Like last year's team was almost entirely transfers and it was the best team he'd had to that point. Uh, I, I do think that given the seniority of their roster, so unless I'm mistaken, and I'm sure like a TCU fan will come and correct this, uh, all of the top six or top seven projected minutes getters are either redshirt juniors or seniors. Like this mm. is an old, old team. And that's generally a good thing in college basketball, but there's like a point of diminishing returns to that, I think. And it kind of feels like it has to be now or never for them to both be A, a legitimate top 20 team, and B, finally breach the Sweet 16 for the first time in literally 54 years. Hmm. And the and it's kind of difficult because sort of legendarily, Dixon is this, you know, horrific underperformer in March. Whether mm-hmm. I don't think there's like I'm I think you and I are of the opinion that there's not really a common thread between uh like styles that underachieve in March. Yeah. Uh, he's probably just been unlucky. But there is that. Like the I mean, he needs to get over those demons soon. Well, it's interesting too. I feel like he's in a bad spot where and everything it's amazing how important timing is in sports and timing is everything and guess what the timing for jamie dixon at tcu uh houston may be one of the five best programs they're coming into the big 12 kelvin sampson's got that thing humming uh at unreal level texas tech you love what they're doing even post uh chris beard they're a top 25 program you look at texas they've spent a lot of money chris beard's got that program moving in the right direction you go up and down the list, you talk about Kansas, but I'm just talking about in the state itself. It's just Baylor. I mean, Baylor is one of the three best. Like, you just look around the state, and you're, and if you're Jamie Dixon, you're like, I mean, what do you want me to do? This is like the best yeah. time in college. I, I, you could make the case. This is the best Texas college basketball has ever been across the state. Like, this is just an unbelievable time to be a Texas ba- college basketball fan, and that's everywhere. So I think TCU is kind of like, I think you have to – view everything that they do and like you said you have to clean up in the portal like jamie dixon has uh to keep up with just what's going on around you and just the investment i don't think is the same at a lot of these premier schools around the state of texas as it is at tcu um which is a still small private school um and there are limitations yeah like would you like to be baylor if you're tcu would you like to get to that point it's like baylor can do it we can do it it's like took time and baylor i mean (laughs) it, it it's easier said than done to do it Scott Drew has done at uh, Baylor, but I mean, they're at the top of their game. Uh, been one of the two best basketball college basketball teams the last two years. 
and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think Baylor is in really good shape for the foreseeable future. So I think TCU's roadmap to serious contention in the Big 12 is just extremely arduous and extremely complicated. And when you look at it, I mean, six years, he's never had a winning record in conference play. That isn't great if you're a, a TCU fan, but you're also, I just, I don't know. If I'm a horned frog, I'm just A, grateful, great mascot, great colors. But yeah. B, <laughs> you know, we just have to get lucky. I think this is a program where they just need the right transfer mix one particular year and they can break through because Jamie Dixon is still uh, an elite coach in this, in this conference, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I mean, the part of the problem for him is that like, even we're talking about Texas, but literally within his own metropolitan area, you have North Texas, true. Grant McCaslin, like one of the best coaches in America, uh, like with that looming over your shoulder and one, they should, uh, you know, it's kind of like mm. how Tennessee never plays Belmont. TCU should never once schedule North Texas. Don't do it. It's only, it's only bad can happen. I don't think so. No, we're no, 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 no. You're not selling me on this. As someone who pushes regional I, I'm, matchups, I'm for, you need for, to do it. From their perspective, they should not. But for our perspective, absolutely yeah. they should. It's the Dale Ravel tweet. Uh, I feel bad for our country, but this is tremendous content. <laughs> I feel bad for TCU, but this is tremendous content. Um, Next up, ESPN's final top 25 preseason rankings came out. Who jumped out to you, Will Warren? So people really seem to be all in on uh, North Carolina as number one. I, I have a feeling, and I, we're going to see if this gets borne out or not, of course, mm. that they're going to open as AP number one. I think it's, judging based on what I've seen, it's going to be between them and Houston. Mm. And I think people are going to opt with the, quote, safer choice of the, you know, more prestigious program in general. Like I'm thinking of like the average basketball writer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like a totally indefensible thing. Like I would put North Carolina in my top four. And I think my, so my top four in this rough order would be Gonzaga, Baylor, Houston, UNC. Hmm. And I think you have a real case for any of those four to be number one. I don't think it's like nothing super offensive there. The things that I'm kind of curious about that I'm keeping tabs on as a metrics guy uh, one, I think, you know, we've talked about Creighton a lot this offseason. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much every, like, writer type, like ESPN, the Almanac that uh, Jeff Goodman and the three-man weave guys put together, uh, Rothstein, etc., all have Creighton, like, kind of, like, 6 to 10 range, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're still waiting on Ken Palm to come out, but there are two metric systems that have dropped their uh, preseason ratings. Mm -hmm. Bart Torvik has Creighton 23rd, and Eric Haslam has them 32nd. That's going to be a really interesting thing to watch throughout the year of like who's more right. And my guess is like as usual, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Like I wouldn't put Creighton in my top ten, but I think they're at least a top twenty team. So I, I want to see how that bears out. And they're your number one Big East team, aren't they? Or is it Villanova? Uh, Villanova, I think. I, I mean, on paper, Villanova is the better team, but I don't know how the coaching transfer is going right. to go. Creighton's probably the superior pick, like on paper. Um. But the, the two that jump out to me of, like, I don't understand why this team is where they're at, uh, is a team in the poll, Oregon. Uh, mm. We did this exact same thing last year, where Oregon was very unimpressive for most of that season. It was a COVID year, so that being granted. Uh, and people put them 12th for no reason. And uh, look what happened. Oregon sucked. Uh, I'm looking at Oregon's roster right now. Torvik has them 37th, Haslam 44th. Uh, Hoop Explorer had them like in the 30s. 
And I think that's kind of more fair, like, you know, 33rd, 34th, somewhere in there than ESPN having them 19th. Hmm. Uh, Because like to me, 19th means you're going to be performing like, like we think Illinois will or Indiana, like, Mm -hmm. and I just don't see it. Um, Hmm. I don't think that roster is that good. A team that I do think, though, is kind of getting underrated somehow uh, is San Diego State. And we've been on this train all offseason. I think they're a legitimate top 15 team. ESPN has them 21st, which is not like a dramatic underrating. But Mm -hmm. I mean, like if you're if they're like a legit top 15 team, as I think they will be, that's like, you know, it's kind of like throwing it back to 2019, the COVID season that got interrupted, where they were that top 10 team the entire way, undefeated for a really long time. I think we're going to see something really special from them this year. We shall see. We shall see. Um, changes to March Madness, potentially. Uh, well, what have we always said? Is that March Madness needs to be worked on. We need to continue making it more complicated. It needs to be messed with a little bit more. That's what I've always said. Is yeah, that... the, the thing we really want. Uh, so one, we want more gambling ads on TV yes. uh, during every single commercial break. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially ones with the Mannings for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite that, I'm gear. I am locked in that Peyton has never once downloaded one of those. Ooh. Uh, Archie, yes. Um, <laughs> so we need that, and we need March Madness for some ungodly reason to have like 128 teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, like everybody that's... is begging for this. We want uh, Gonzaga to play Mississippi Valley State in front of a crowd of 22. Oh man, I um. I, I really hope that, I mean, I think we're going to see changes no matter what. I think part of the future of college football realignment, just, I think it's naive to believe that March Madness is going to stay uh, as currently constructed uh, if um, a lot of these conferences have to evolve a little bit and have to realign. I don't think it's just going to be the status quo. I just don't think that's going to be how it goes. Um, but I do think there will be enough of a pushback that it won't it's just too much of a money maker like you just look at the ratings and you look at how much money uh the sport brings in from that time that i think they're going to want to be extremely careful with what they do um but i do think there will be differences i mean i wouldn't be surprised if there's more i could see a scenario where you make it harder for the smaller schools to get in maybe removing uh the automatic qualifiers from all these different conferences that wouldn't surprise me um to get more of the super power three power four conference teams in the big dance like i could see something like that um be a gradual shift um but the idea of like just locking it out and only doing the traditional big conferences only that was thrown out when realignment was really at the forefront a couple months ago i don't think that will be a thing um but We'll see because the rosters will continue to get more and more lopsided with NIL and everything else that uh, if there's one thing we've learned from March is that uh, lopsided rosters never, never lose. They never lose against smaller teams. That's uh, it's never a thing. Yeah. They so never why do lose it? as a 15 seed with a supposed national player of the year or anything. No, never um, happens. So my opinion here is the same as it's always been, which is that expansion is bad and should not happen. Uh, strangely though, the last time this happened, I do kind of feel like we've arrived on a really good model now where it's like, Mm. really, this should be 64, right? We shouldn't have like play and crap or whatever, but Mm -hmm. for what it is, the first four is really entertaining and Mm. has been the entire time it's been on. There's 
I, I cannot immediately remember a first four year where there wasn't like of the four games, like one pretty interesting, fun, weird thing that happened. Like even this past year where it was like a couple of them were duds, uh, but like Notre Dame and Rutgers went to overtime. That was weird. That was fun. So I think the first four is pretty cool. Um, I, I don't think they should expand it even to 72. Like maybe at, at, at the very most, and I do not recommend this, but at very most, like you can do 70, you can get in like two more 18 and 14 Big Ten teams or whatever. Let Rutgers get in this time again. Why not? Mm -hmm. um, and if you choose to do that, like, okay, maybe you can add an extra play-in game or something. Or you can turn it into like a little mini tournament if you do 72. But I, I think anything beyond that is going to be a really hard sell on fans. It is money and money will always be made. But the idea of this ever getting to like 96 or something extreme is frankly nauseating. Yeah, I hope that doesn't happen, but we'll see. We have a 96 team tournament. 32 of them play in the NIT. We don't need that to become part of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, let's let's hope that's the case. Um, Kentucky's most intriguing game on the schedule for you, Will, is what? Uh, many people are saying it'll be their rematch with St. Peter's in March. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, so the obvious answer here is the Gonzaga game, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, really, uh, and we're gonna have to see what the AP poll says. That plans to be a matchup of what should be two top five teams on a sunday like marquee game so <laughs> kentucky's love... in your preseason top five uh so one to five gonzaga baylor houston unc kentucky i okay. think that's my top five um so and i think that i think uk is going to be in the top five like basically no matter what come then even if they i mean kentucky's only real struggle game before that is michigan state at a neutral site and one, I cannot imagine them really losing that game. Two, mm. uh, even if they do, that's like that's not like a huge hit to your resume. Um, but either way, like Sunday game, I freaking love that Gonzaga's listing it as a neutral site while uh, Kentucky says it's a true road game. <laughs> that's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, good on that disagreement. Uh, I'm really interested in that because that's the toughest opponent they're going to play. But there are two games more pertinent to like their season uh interests aka mm -hmm. winning the sec that matter more uh road tennessee in mid-january is going to be massive for them i i think you know it, really both of the tennessee games will be huge in deciding the sec title um i i think you know they're probably obviously going to fare worse at tba than they would at rup but that first one is really going to set the tone for the season because you know coming into that tennessee schedule is pretty light like they've kind of got an easy run-up of sorts to that mm -hmm. kentucky game Whereas, like, UK's isn't, like, you know, brutal, but you've got to go at Mizzou, who's reloaded, at Alabama, and then, you know, that next Saturday you're at Tennessee. That's a pretty rough stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, and then closing the season, they will play Arkansas on the road. And I think we're all, like, in general agreement, Arkansas is probably the third in the three-team hierarchy among, at the top of the SEC. They're somewhere, I think they're third. Some people have them second, but either way. That's a really intriguing game because, I mean, frankly, the SEC could come down to the final day. Mm. It did of sorts this past season. I mean, Auburn, you know, escaped blowing it. But, yeah, it just seems like the SEC always comes down to that final Saturday. 
And for such a marquee matchup, that's like, that's just so good. Like Kentucky, Arkansas to close it out is going to be really interesting as long as both live up to expectations. I like it. Um, Will, the last thing we end on this, uh, Villanova, the latest in our Ken Palm season in review series. Jay Wright out. We'll see uh, which of our favorite planets in the solar system work out with Coach Neptune here uh, taking over uh, at Villanova. I'm very curious to see how this goes. Um, I think a lot of folks, it's just easy to, uh, when games aren't happening, you see this a lot where just, I mean, you saw Marcus Freeman uh, replacing Brian Kelly where part of that, I mean, there's excitement. Look, he was, uh, Brian Kelly tried to bring him to LSU and, that didn't go well, and he's a highly sought-after recruiter and uh, coach and defensive mind. And look, and they lose to um, Ohio State in the opener. They get upset at home to Marshall, and it's like, oh, right, games happen, and we really don't know. Like, you can be as energetic and awesome, and everyone can like you, and then games happen. Eventually, games have to happen, and uh, shout-out to Shane Beamer at uh, South Carolina. Another example of games actually have to happen, the South Carolina Game Talks, where we are in almost mid-October, who have yet to win an SEC game uh, this fall. You look at it, and you're like, all right, well, I mean, we'll see. He's replacing maybe one of the 10 best college basketball coaches of all time. Like, that's a really, really hard thing to do. Uh, Maybe he can keep this thing humming. But we don't know. Villanova's hard to forecast because you are walking in. I mean, this is one of the biggest, biggest jobs to fill uh, what Jay Wright was doing. And he did an unbelievable job getting guys to the pros. Unbelievable offensive strategy. It worked. He was kind of ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Like, we'll just see. Like, I I, I think it's um, it could go either way, which is a, a, a way of couching it. But I'm like, look, man. I, I don't know. Nep, uh, Jay Wright's one of the best, and I, my instinct is like, he won't be as good because most aren't. But you also can go the Hubert Davis route where you're like, man, it's going to be really, really hard to follow Roy Williams. Then he does what he does. And it's like, we have no idea. John Schneier, like, we'll see it, Duke. Um, he's literally following Coach K. I mean, expectations are going to be insane, and it's a lot to live up. It's a lot of stress, and we'll see. I, I, I just... I, I throw that out a lot, but I'm like, I don't know. People get so caught up in the off-season press conferences and the excitement and all this, that, and the other. And it's like, all right, I mean, maybe. We've seen it go the other way, too. Uh, which way are you leaning for Villanova uh, and where they're going uh, into next season and going forward? Uh, I feel all right about them. Uh, the, the interesting thing with Neptune is, you know, it's going to be uh, the real – Sell and him will be like these first few games they play. So hmm. I, I don't know how many people have checked, but they've got like quite the tricky start to the season. So first five, two of these are obvious toss-offs. LaSalle and Delaware State, who cares? Mm-hmm. But in those five, there's three games away from home. Road Temple, never an easy place to win. Road Michigan State, which is a real bold uh, schedule choice. And uh, Iowa State at a neutral site. If he gets out of those at two and one, I think that's a win. Hmm. that's that's like a huge success if you, if you can escape and they're going to be favored in all three but if you can escape that at two and one you're going to be okay i think um i i feel that like you know he's lucky that he's walking into a situation where there's a good talent baseline i think unquestionably they have one of i would say the 15 most talented rosters in college basketball this year and that sets your floor at like if things go 
south within a realistic level of south, mm. you're still one of like the top 30 or so teams out there. You're going to make the tournament. You're going to be fine. And if you kind of go south a little bit, people will say, oh, it's his first year. It's his second year ever as a head coach. Don't, you know, don't freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're set up pretty well. I think they're going to be really good offensively again. It's It's going to be the exact same system. So I don't have a ton of reason to expect much of a lapse offensively. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think that given their personnel, uh, I'm going to be interested to see what they do defensively. Uh, Neptune, you know, he had a really good year at Fordham. I know 16 and 16 doesn't pop on the paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was his defense that really worked best, but they, I mean, they just didn't have athletes to score, Uh, you know, terrible shooting all around for them. But uh, I think with a with a better system, better group of players, and a year under his belt of experience, I think he's going to be fine. And, you know, like you said, I don't expect him to be as successful as Jay Wright. The real baseline here is just, like, keep it going and then mm-hmm. add your own stuff. You don't want to be, like, a copy of a copy of a copy. You want to be, like, Jay Wright, but, like, you know, or, well, yeah, I don't think you can be Jay Wright, but what I'm getting at is you want to be yourself but encourage like those same traditions to keep carrying on, keep the best of what was going on, and to continue to build for the future. I, I think they're going to be all right, honestly. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to see. Like, I mean, that, that's the fun of this. You, that, you really don't know until you know. Never trust someone who's like home run hire. He's going to be great. Like, he yeah, that, to... that's literally every single hire. Uh, yes. from the uh, the journalists on Twitter is just like. Greatest hire of all time. Players no, love him. No oh, people behind the scenes are all in. Like, just they were lucky to get him. Uh, this, like, you just hear that all across the board, and it's like games happen. And it's like, what happens if they're eight and eight <laughs> through sixteen games? And you're like, yeah, oh, exactly. People, uh, we, people are just like, well, I don't know, man. Give him time. Like, okay, we're giving him <laughs> and then you're like, all right, how much time? Uh, it's just people like who they like, and it's a narrative thing. It's a, it's a big thing. Uh, is there a I, game? I will with... say, I do find it really interesting before we leave here. Yeah. They don't have anybody committed for 2023. Like, hmm. not a single player is committed at the moment. So, uh, not that everybody has to do the John Shire thing of immediately coming in and having the best class in college basketball. Um, but obviously, I think they're going to have to fix that soon. Because Brandon Slater and Caleb Daniels uh, lose eligibility after this year. So, got to replace those guys. Uh, it's easier said than done keeping a top 10 program top 10 in college basketball. It's uh, a lot lot of stuff going into it. But should be interesting. Should be fun. Villanova uh, is one of the more fun teams to watch unless they're playing the Tennessee Volunteers, in which case it is not a good time and I'm not having fun. Uh, Will, <laughs> do you have a stat of the week for us this week? No stats other than okay. I have uh, people I'm sure will be thrilled to hear this. I started working on the season preview for Tennessee last night. Okay. Uh, and uh, I will save it for the preview, but the uh, the statistical cops for Zakai Ziegler last year as a freshman are genuinely hilarious. Mm, okay. Uh, like whereas, it. like, of the six closest comparisons, one was obviously Kennedy Chandler, and uh, four of the other six were future NBA guys. So there you go. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, Stats by Will. Find him on Twitter. Stats by Will. Bookmark. Uh, the great website and his great writing that uh, coming back very soon. It's almost college basketball season again. Uh, bookmark statsbywill.com. Do it today. And, it's almost uh, back, folks. We're going to be unveiling some good jokes like Kyle Saturn. And uh, <laughs> Kyle's a really big fan of the Saturn View. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his favorite car. 
So yeah, yeah we're, we're workshopping these. Man, Saturns, those were, uh, someone in my neighborhood growing up had a Saturn. And it was just always like one of those cars you look at and you're like, that car is going to make it 37 years. But it, it looked yeah. old when you got it. Like when you got, when you buy a Saturn and you buy it new, it looks 10 years old off the lot. It was one of those, but it just kept going. It was a, it was a it's, beater. It's like the Wisconsin yeah. front court of yes. cars. Uh, that's a great comparison. They, they just look the exact same no matter like when it was bought. Yes. hundred percent. And <laughs> never buy a Saturn new. So not a future sponsor of the podcast. Uh, no, well, well, they're defunct now, I think. Yeah. So. I wonder when the last year they made it. Uh, who cares? Um, <laughs> so that's what will. Thank you as always, my friend. And I will talk to you next week. All right, we're back. Go be our Friday on a Thursday with... Rocky Top Insiders, Ryan Shumpert, before he hits the road, or excuse me, the private jet uh, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, like, what is your favorite uh, dish on the private jet, Ryan Shumpert? They have this great, you know, chicken that's kind of wrapped in bacon. It has some, like, gravy over top, top brown gravy. Really mm. good. Really high-level stuff. Mashed potatoes with it. Kind of like a Hardy Boys style of life. Uh, yeah, where you're just always eating amazing. That's kind of what a private jet life's like. A Hardy Boys uh, type play. Yeah, and you're also a big Dr. Pepper guy. Uh, do they have it on deck? Do they know you're coming? So they just they get the 12 yeah. pack of Dr. Pepper ready to go. Yeah, 24 pack. Don't. Yeah, they gotta they gotta have me covered for way down and back. So yeah. They, what are, they, what's the most amount of Dr. Peppers you've actually drank in one day? What would you guess? Go buy like a 12 ounce Dr. Pepper. So when I go mm-hmm. to a gas station to get like a two ounce, and it counts, we'll say three. Mm-hmm. I would guess I've been in the ten range before. The which one? The eight to ten range. Oh, no kidney stones for you though. No kidney stones for me, and I, you know, that's, that's not normal. Again, that's like worst case scenario. Like I go cover, make a day trip to go cover a game. So yeah. waking up early drink coffee so gotta get some caffeine and then at the game probably having a couple and then drive back late night drive back probably wouldn't have the early morning drive but a late night drive back i've done a couple of those you know leave at 11 o'clock drive four about hours back or i just gotta be pounding them to to stay energized but not a coffee guy never had an energy drink that's uh dr pepper's kind of my source of caffeine did you try coffee at least oh yeah i've tried coffee horrible drink just terrible what a take this is a horrible Miserable. take. I, I mean, I know I'm in the minority on it. Yeah. I, I can't, I've, and I've tried it because I know not that coffee is the healthiest thing in the world either, but like, I'm like, yeah, this is so unhealthy what, how much Dr. Pepper I'm drinking. Big soda got to you. What happened, Ryan? Big soda, they got to you, and uh, there's no turning back. They threatened me with a world where I had to just watch the fans and all commercials over and over and over again <laughs> if I don't drink Dr. Pepper. That's what happened. Uh, if you had to do a Dr. Pepper ad read, how would you do it? In what, in what sense? Like if we like in this podcast and they were like, hey, Dr. Pepper, we, we heard about Ryan Shumpert's uh, Dr. Pepper love. Um, 30 seconds on uh, if he could do his And I'm coming up with it? Yeah. Could you yeah. come up with a, a oh, yeah. good read? All right. Ready to go. Yeah. Let's do it, Ryan. Dr. Pepper, new sponsor, Chase Thomas podcast. Welcome him in. Uh, a great beverage. Highest level soft drink there is. 23 flavors. 23 <laughs> flavors of Dr. Pepper. You got the Dr. Pepper diet Dr. Pepper. By far the best diet drink of mm-hmm. any soft drink. By far, not even close. Dr. Pepper Cherry, Dr. Pepper Vanilla. It's high level stuff. The twenty three flavors they combined in your mouth, and wow, what a what a burst 
What a burst of flavor. <laughs> Dr. Pepper, shout out, newest sponsor, Chase Thomas Podcast. That was pretty good. That was that was good. You, it felt right real. Off the cuff. Yeah, I mean, there's there are few people that can endorse Dr. Pepper with as much true and genuine intention as I can. That's there's no doubt about that. How do I transition to Warren Burrell from here? I can do a good Dr. Pepper ad read. I can't. I I can't. I don't have it in me to, to do that level of transitioning though. Well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Warren Burrell, he is uh, out for the season, Ryan. Um, that was revealed earlier this week. Um, so no Warren Burrell. Insert D. Williams, who is apparently going to play a significant role. Uh, I saw from Ben McKee today that Hypel said that D. Williams is going to play a big role on Saturday, who we have literally not seen yet. So that's interesting. But what do you make of Burrell's... Um, now season-long absence, and where does that uh, put the Tennessee secondary uh, with D. Williams entering the fold? Do you see movement around the secondary where certain guys who were going to be at the star or certain guys who were at safety, like we just, you mix and match? Like, how do you think Willie Martinez goes forward without Warren Burrell? And he knows Warren Burrell is gone for the year. I think it's pretty dependent on what D. Williams gives Tennessee. If Mm -hmm. D. Williams can step up and be a guy that, shoulders maybe 50 percent of the snaps with christian charles and, and plays pretty well or pretty well might not even be the right word because i'm not sure any of tennessee's corners besides kamal Haddon will play pretty well this season but play at a similar level to what you already have then uh, while burrell's loss is, is certainly just that a loss i don't think it's crippling or, or overwhelming and i don't think you would see a lot of changes uh, with guys moving around in the back end of the defense now if d williams were to be banged up again or uh, he struggles to come in and really produce anything for Tennessee. They, they can't trust him to play. He ends up being in that same boat as a Brandon Turnage. Uh, then I think maybe you do look at some potential uh, guys moving around. Uh, maybe probably would have to be someone at the star spot out, out the corner, uh, I think would be the most logical. Probably uh, you have to think that Wesley Walker is probably more of a safety. So I wouldn't think it would be him. I would think maybe he would slide in uh, to that starting spot. So, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think in the short term, probably not a whole lot of movement uh, and a whole lot of changes, but I think it's pretty dependent on what D. Williams can give Tennessee. Do you think we see a lot of Rucker and Brandon Turnage on Saturday? No, not okay. in Leicester, not in Leicester Force too. I mean, those two guys got in briefly in the Florida game, and I mean Brandon Turnage was in for a play, and they immediately hit a thirty-yard pass over over. So him, it's funny so. you say that because Turnage that was on my side of the field for the game, right? And yeah. there was a Florida fan next to me. Uh, my wife was up getting some Petros. So he was sitting, he was standing next to me and uh, I'm dying silently uh, with my broken foot. Um, like, like, as you mentioned, gritty effort. We haven't talked since then because you weren't on the pod last week. So let me tell you, miserable, Ryan. Like I was screaming internally in pain with just how much I was having to walk around and move. And I mean, I got dropped off at the communications building and I was still dying yeah. uh, by the end of it. And just asking everyone uh to drive me to my car like just asking cops beat staff like hey just let me jump on the back if you're one guy was like oh it's illegal for you to ride i'm like that's definitely not a thing um one of the groundskeeper cars you know what i'm talking about like they they just can't i'm like "Mm, you can uh that's not a thing illegal like there someone's gonna stop the guy with the broken foot uh wow what are you doing get this man out of here you're going to jail sir um but no so turnage went in and i saw turnage go in on my side and <laughs> i turned to uh the florida fan and i was like i guarantee you they're going at turnage right now like i guarantee you they're going to turnage and 
first play, like you said, 30-yard big play. And I was like, that's it. Turnage is gone. And he was like, oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, they Richardson literally just saw Turnage come on the field. And Napier, I'm sure, because it's on the Florida side, that he comes over. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 no. They're, we're calling it. It's, it's going to the side. I don't remember if it was Pearsall or who uh, they hit on that one, but they immediately targeted. Which is crazy, because like, Turnage is actually like the highest recruit-rated uh, player in the secondary, right? Like I think of the starting corners – he was like what 95 on 247 he was a four-star kid um but just oh my god not good no and pretty surprising too like, yeah not that you know i thought brandon Turner was going to be a stud but for him to be someone who literally cannot help tennessee a corner yeah i did not see that coming at all and you know i really thought he probably which probably is me being subject and just looking at the recruiting rankings a little bit uh, and how we did when he had some opportunities last year in the star with Theo Jackson. Now I thought he probably had the highest ceiling uh, of any, maybe besides Charles, cause he's, I think talented and obviously just still pretty young and played safety in his freshman season. But I thought he had a high ceiling and man, it, it has not come together for him this season. Yeah. And a lot of folks are like, Oh, Tennessee is going to live and die by the secondary. Oh, this is good. It's like, well, Tennessee could win 10 games with a bad secondary. You can win multiple games. Like, I don't know if you watched uh, the Wake Forest Demon Deacons last year, uh, but it was not exactly just a bunch of elite uh, DBs back there. But when you have a Sam Hartman and you have the offensive firepower that you like in this kind of sport, that just wins a lot of games. Like, you're just going to win more often than not when you're literally number one right now in passing offense. Tennessee is number one in the country right now in passing offense. Uh, and Hooker, the best QBR uh, through four weeks. Like, that's going to win you most games. And I think we talked about it where Tennessee was the only team in college football last year in the power five to have a top 10 scoring offense and not win 10 games of everyone in the list. And I just, if they're there again, I just, I'm there. And what did I say before the season ride is either Tennessee makes a big jump and they're at 10 or they take a big step back because everyone adjusted and uh hypo doesn't have an answer to the adjustments at six and six. We we're going towards the, the 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 former so i uh i don't know i'm very excited about this matchup because i think a lot of tennessee fans are nervous going to death valley on saturday 11 a.m kick which a lot of folks seem to uh feel is in tennessee's favor i i tend to share that sentiment i don't know if that will ultimately uh sway which way this game goes it not being a night game in death valley but i do think at the very least it it helps um but I, it's interesting, like the, the history of Tennessee on the road, especially against uh, SEC West foes, is not good the last 20 years. Like you go through the list, uh, SportsCenter had a crazy stat of like, I'd have to pull it up. But basically, Tennessee has not been good on the road against ranked teams for a very long time. Uh, that has just not been uh, Tennessee football since uh, basically the early 2000s, late 90s. Like it's just been a mess on the road against high profile SEC competition that being said I look at the matchup and I don't see LSU being a good matchup for Tennessee where LSU they run the ball really well Tennessee the one thing they're pretty good at to this point in the season I think they're like 32nd uh, per CFP stats in run defense and watching week over week Richardson shredded Tennessee through the air it wasn't on the ground Uh, Tennessee held their own on that front and they really have in the pit game outside of the big run by uh, Pitts running back I mean what you take away that 75 yard run you're looking at a completely different running stat and running line in that one Tennessee is good at uh, stopping the run and Jane Daniels has not 
been efficient through the air to this point. I don't think this is a good matchup for them. I, I just, I think Tennessee should actually win comfortably. And if this is a home game for Tennessee, I think they'd be favored by more than the Florida game. Um, do you share that sentiment? I do. I think there's just a lot of factors in this game that works well for Tennessee. And you hit on really the more on the field stuff on Saturday. We'll see. But obviously the 11 a.m. kickoff, Tennessee is coming off a bye week where mm -hmm. LSU is coming off of a really emotional and physical win at Auburn. And a game that Jaden Daniels for the second straight week leaves the game with an injury and mm -hmm. a different injury than the one before. And he's going to play. And we know that. And he'll probably will be able to run the ball some, but I imagine he will be limited in what he can do on uh, with his legs. So I think there's just a lot of factors that come in this game and help Tennessee. And I think it was really good for Tennessee that LSU did win uh, against Auburn because you're not going to have a desperate team that they're going to face Saturday in Tiger stadium. So I think you're right. And I think, you hit the nail on the head. I think the biggest matchup to watch is LSU's passing attack versus Tennessee's pass defense because it is a very movable object meets a very easily stopped force. And something's got to give. And, and, I mean, LSU has really circled the wagons this week, uh, I would say, with that. I mean, Brian Kelly has talked about in his press conference at Leaf about how Jaden Daniels has to trust his receivers and has to give them an opportunity to make plays. And Jaden Daniels called a closed-door players-only meeting between him, his receivers, and, and – tight ends, rest of the pass catchers, to figure out the passing attack. And certainly from LSU's side of things, there's probably not a better game for them to figure out than against Tennessee. And because just what you said, you saw what Anthony Richardson, who had a lot of similar struggles, do against Tennessee two weeks ago. I think Tennessee's going to be better in the past defense than they were against Florida in that Florida game. And I think you're right. LSU's rushing attack, I think Tennessee's going to be able to at least limit it where they don't get killed on the ground. And LSU's pass protection hasn't been very good either. I think this is a game that Tennessee can get some pressure with four guys. And I think if they do that, that's just going to make life all the more difficult for Jaden Daniels. And I think it, it really is a matchup Tennessee that sets up well for Tennessee. And I think uh, I'm going to have Tennessee winning this game by about two touchdowns. Isn't it crazy? Like we're just two touchdowns on the road in Death Valley. Um, it just feels right. And it just does. And I think, look, I get the PTSD uh, for a lot of Tennessee fans about all this stuff. But like part of the thing I, I don't really pay too much mind to when it comes to past stats, is just like the, the history there. It's like, that's Derek Dooley. That's a uh, Lane Like that has no bearing on any of the players or any of the coaching staff that's here right now. It's hard to just put too much stock into that. And I'm definitely not a superstitious person. And just like, Oh, there's something wrong with Tennessee on the road and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I, I think things are just different. And I, I'm curious though, because LSU now has had time to look to see what Tennessee looks like without Cedric Tillman, and we'll see if he plays on Saturday. I know he's flying with the team um, after getting the type group ankle surgery, and he's been limited this week. But um, he seems like a game time decision if he's going to go. But if he does play, like he's not going to be the same. It's not like he. I, I would not expect him to get the kind of targets and looks from Hidden Hooker that he had gotten through the first three weeks of the season. And I wonder if that messes things up a little bit or you kind of want to just know, can you go and we play normally with you or not go? Because we actually had a lot of success with Brew out wide, which is kind of forgotten about because Ramel Keaton, our old friend, just blew everybody's mind just with, I mean, the deep catches, uh, laying, his, laying it all out for uh, Tennessee deep. Like that was big. I think that might be a tough conversation to have where it's like, hey, said we either need you to go or not, because then it just messes up our rotation and it makes it more complicated for the guys like Ramel and Brew to know exactly 
what's coming for them. I, I don't know. I think that's something to monitor a little bit. Is that overthinking it? I think that's an interesting idea, but I just think to me it's still at the point where it's kind of skeptical. Mm. So much skepticism around Tillman playing that I just kind of feel like Tennessee is preparing to play without him. And if yeah. he can play and he can go, that's great. We'll put him out there, but he's not going to be 100%. Even if he plays, he's not going to be 100%. It's not going to be the mm. same guy you saw at Pitt. So I think the game plan is kind of similar to what it was against Florida. We, we're not going to have Tillman. If he's out there and he can go, great. But it's not going to all of a sudden, just because he's out there, turn into the Pittsburgh game or, or a lot of the times, really the last season when Tennessee's been playing big-time teams where it's Cedric Tillman's the go-to guy. Uh, I think it's just kind of preparation for him – Preparation for the game without him, and if he's out there, great. We'll get him involved, too. But I, I think Tennessee's very prepared to play this game without him. And I think it's a big game for Mel Keaton because let's say he goes out and does what he did again, was take away the amazing 40-yard catch. But mm. he has three or four big plays. He has 40 yards, 50 yards. You know, I think that's the point where Mel Keaton has kind of forced himself to be in the lineup or be in the rotation, even when Tillman comes back. And, you know, I've been more skeptical about Tennessee playing a lot of receivers than anybody. But uh, I think if Tillman, excuse me, if uh, Keaton continues to show what he's capable of and show what he did against Florida, I think he's going to find himself uh, getting snaps, even when Tillman comes back. Probably not Tillman snaps, probably Brew McCoy snaps for the most part. But I think he's going to almost make himself, he has a chance at least to make himself a part of the rotation the rest of the season. I really just think it comes down to like Tennessee not winning by double digits is the turnovers. Like at the fumbles, like Princeton Fant had the big fumble uh, into the end zone. He responded really well. And that was huge. We can just knock on wood, throw out interceptions for Tennessee. Like that is just yeah. not what Hendon Hooker does. And that is what Auburn did in the second half. Like the interceptions, the turnovers, like in the red zone. That is the reason Auburn did not win that football game is the four to one turnover margin. And Tennessee if they're not muffing punts inside their 10, if they're not fumbling the ball, really, because I just don't think the interceptions are there. And I don't think Hinton Hooker is going to get antsy and make some boneheaded moves uh, on Saturday. I just, it's just not him. There's too much of a body of work now to just go, that's not what's going to happen in this game. Now, the fumbles is the thing. Like, I think that might determine whether or not Tennessee wins big or Tennessee is in a dogfight with two minutes left in this game. And it's significantly closer than it should be i mean that's the thing is i hope the stress this week has all been about just hold on to the ball and there's no way we lose this game like no fumbles no fumbles whoever like princeton fan trey flowers hendon getting blindsided hit like whatever that's the main thing because he's not going to put us in arm's way through the air if we just hold on to the ball we should be fine you're right and that's something i talked about really back before the florida game that i think is almost so frustrating with how Tennessee played early in the season is that Tennessee should win the turnover battle every game, or at least not lose it, because you have a quarterback that takes such good care of the ball, and yeah. you have such confidence that he's not going to make mistakes. And you even look at the interceptions he's thrown, obviously to Pitt uh, one last year, his first game in, and in the Alabama and Georgia one, where kind of Tennessee was down late and he was pressing. It was a situation that Tennessee, I don't expect him to be in on Saturday. So you're absolutely right. I think it's very much about not making dumb special teams mistakes. And I'll say, I still think Tennessee is not, or Paxton Brooks is not as quick as he needs to be on some of these punts. There's still been a couple, no, not as super close calls, even like there wasn't a pit game before they blocked that one. There was the one they were real close, but I still think that's an area to watch. And certainly with Tennessee, does D Williams with him being back, does he get a look at punt returner? Because he was one of the guys that was mentioned in fall camp as one of their main candidates to return punts. So, I think that's a huge emphasis. And kind of on the flip, 
side. Jaden Daniels hasn't thrown an interception this year. And we, I talked about all the discussions of them wanting to be more aggressive in the passing game and take more chances. Does he take a, a poor chance? Does he, uh, because he was turnover prone at Arizona state. It wasn't like he came in with the reputation that hooker has had this past year where he threw three interceptions last season. He threw a lot of interceptions last season. And I do think on the flip side where LSU may hit some big plays in the passing game that they haven't, I think if Tennessee can find a way to get pressure and Daniels being a little more aggressive, I think they can get a couple takeaways that LSU really hasn't been prone to give up so far this season. Do you feel like Tennessee fans are okay with the loss here? I feel like most are, they're okay with this one. I kind of disagree. Hmm. I mean, I don't think it's going to be like, <laughs> going to be like what it would have been if they lost to Pitt or they lost to Florida. I think those would have been way more of a problem. I agree, but I think there's so much excitement around what this team can be. And the mm. fact that Tennessee is better than LSU is shown that they're better than LSU, better than LSU at this point in the season. People are still going to be upset. Now, I think you're right. It is probably the least they'll be upset of a lot of the toss-up games. Mm. But I think there's just right now such a feeling around the, the team that this could be a special season. And I think to drop a game that – especially depending on how they do it. Because, you know, if they Tennessee loses – it's probably going to be because they make some of these mistakes we're talking about. Just self-inflected wounds, I think, is going to have people pretty pretty frustrated, at least. That's fair. Um, we'll see what ultimately happens. Um, I'm okay with it. We'll, uh, I think they're going to be careful with said. I think they want said for Alabama. I think that's the thing. It's like, just get to Alabama at home, and I think there's no chance that that man is not full go uh, in Neyland next weekend. But um, it'll be fun. Smoky Rays. Are you in favor of the Smoky Rays? Are you a, are you a proponent? Ryan, not really, but mm. look, they're not where they didn't wear them against Florida. I mean, I had my big ramp in the off season. How beautiful is it going to be watching the replay of that Florida game from years to come with Tennessee yeah. wearing orange uniforms? I think the fact that they're wearing them this week means they won't wear them against Alabama. So I can live with it. You got to make sacrifices. This is a, I wouldn't a like the, the, the smoky grays against Alabama. That would be, re- that's preposterous. That has to always yeah. be classic. Yes, exactly. And I think part of, don't like him in the LSU game is I just like go back and watch really not highlights but the end of that 2010 game because it's so funny to watch honestly uh the Tennessee LSU game in 2010 the 13 minute on the field game and man those uniform combinations they look beautiful the LSU white with yellow pants Tennessee orange jerseys white pants they look phenomenal together so a little disappointed that we won't get that but hey like I said you got to make sacrifices and uh Tennessee not wearing alternate uniforms uh, against florida and alabama i can live with them wearing them on the road at lsu yeah it feels like the black is coming out against kentucky right that's where we'd assume yeah i mean it just it just has that feel because it is halloween weekend and you look at the sec slate that day obviously there's still stuff could happen in the next few weeks it feels like it's going to be a night game i think mm-hmm. of the game the home games on tennessee schedule it has the best chance or the remaining games it has the best chance to be a night game so it just they might do mizzou at home sense. at 8 a.m just to get it out of the way <laughs> Just get it, get it over with for mm-hmm. today. Make it be a seven a.m. game for the, the Central Time dessert. Can Mizzou people. forfeit? Can we just go ahead and sim that one in? Because uh, I just I don't know if we can go ahead and lock it in on October six, but uh, Tennessee's winning that game by four touchdowns. Like, just go ahead and lock it in. There's no point for Eli Drinkwitz and his team to come to Knoxville. Well, I think the point is that Eli Drinkwitz can pay with a four touchdown loss for his snarky comments about Ooh. Tennessee this off season. Come on, buddy. You you lost you lost to a Jeremy Pruitt team that won three games, and you were gonna talk trash about it. Come on, come on, man. You're better than that. Ooh. 
Strong words from uh, Ryan Shepard. I also just think, I wonder if this is the week where Tennessee fans, if they pull this off against LSU, where I think some are still holdouts, like a lot of my family who've just grown up and just went to Tennessee 40 years ago and uh, have seen this story before, and they're like, I'm not buying all the way back in. And I'm like, there's a reason they're number six in college football playoff odds. There's a reason that they have the third highest uh, probability of winning the SEC as a whole. Is like the body of work now, we're a season and a half in. Like, this is sustainable. I think at some point you just have to dip your toe all, dip your toes in and just say, hey, this offense isn't going anywhere. This is an offensive-driven sport. Tennessee is going to win more games than they lose for the foreseeable future. And I think this is one of the six best teams in the country this year. And I think um, that's not going to change uh, for the remainder of the year. Like, I, I, it's funny. Like, you just have to – I wonder which game it just clicks for the final holdouts of, like, this is different – this is sustainable. The recruits are coming. Like, it's just, this is all happening. And you have to sign, like, you have to get okay with this is all just part of a, part of a new era of Tennessee football. And I wonder if it's the LSU game. I, I think there's a lot to point to it maybe being the LSU game. But I wonder if there's a lot of 2016 still in, in people's yeah. minds where Tennessee started for now. And I agree, but I, I think that's last season in the last... 15 years where Tennessee started so hot and you you had this buzz around the team and Tennessee was in the top 10 mm-hmm. and I think the fact that so much of the schedule obviously the Georgia game is later but obviously Georgia that year isn't anything comparable to Georgia this year but you win two games are early in the season pretty big games and you're 4-0 and then you head to an SEC West team that you're very capable of beating I don't remember what the point spread was in that 2016 a game but I imagine it was a field goal one way or the other probably so similar to what you have Saturday, and that's being before the Alabama game. I do think that there probably will be a lot of people that are skeptical, you know, that they buy in if Tennessee wins on, on Saturday. And, you know, if you don't buy in after, you know, I would I agree with you. I think you should already be bought in. Uh, but if you haven't bought in yet and you don't buy in after the LSU game, I mean, what are you waiting for? Like, maybe if you're thinking Tennessee's going to win a national championship, you're waiting to see if they can beat Alabama or Georgia. But it's like for Tennessee to go 10-2, they got – they're three, three or four hardest games out of the way if they beat LSU, which is that Kentucky game remaining. So uh, I'm with you. I, I think people should be all in at this point. And if they're not, I think most everybody will be after Saturday if the Vols get the win. Uh, Vice and Lane, do you think he's a Vol? Feels like he is, right? It does feel like he is. I mean, anytime you see a commitment date announced a week after he visits one school, yeah, it feel that feels like a pretty positive side, and I, I do think there's been some crystal balls over at twenty four seven that have Lane going to Tennessee. So uh, that seems to be the way that one's trending. But uh, I guess we'll see in a few weeks here for sure. Uh, what do you think he is? Is he a guard or a tackle? I just look at that body size, and I'm not a guru of figuring out what people are. I haven't poured over the tape, but I just look at that body size, and I think guard. I think Tennessee would like him to be a tackle, just from the topic we've discussed on here a handful of times that they struck out on three of their top four offenses. They're still missing prospects. one. They're still missing one. And I think they're kind of, of really doing a lot of reevaluation of the board probably this fall when they look at senior season tape of some guys. So I could see him, you know, Tennessee gets into him starting at tackle, but I don't know. I just look at that body in that frame and I say that's, that's an interior offensive lineman. Yeah, I would agree. Um, we'll see. I think the portal is ultimately where they land on the yeah. the second offensive tackle spot. I don't think there's – unless maybe Lucas Simmons. That's the one holdout I'll say is I would not be surprised if Florida State, because they got NC State at home this weekend, 
uh, Clemson, uh, or NC State on the road, actually. And then Clemson, I mean, there's if you look at Florida State's schedule down the stretch here, uh, it's rough. They got to go to Miami, I believe. Um, and then Florida, they didn't get over that hump last year. But there's a path to 6-6 six and six Florida State, and maybe the Vols can uh, get back into the Lucas Simmons sweepstakes. But I would not rule that one out uh, based on the intel there. Um Ryan Shepard, what can the good folks check out from you over at Rocky Top Insider this week? Yeah, so there's plenty of stuff getting you guys ready for the game, kind of looking at some of Tennessee's injury stuff. D. Williams will have three keys to the game tomorrow and also a piece looking at how Josh Heifel's performed in his career coming off the bye week. So plenty of stuff on the football front and then uh, kind of dipping our toe into the basketball stuff. Tennessee had their in-house media day this week, so had some good stuff from that and then also uh, some practice observations watching uh, the Vols. It's really scrimmage, uh, not even really practice, but scrimmage for a couple hours earlier this week. So uh, I know it's obviously a lot of excitement around football, as there should be, but uh, I think another you know really good top 10, top 15 Tennessee basketball team will be on, be on the court this winter and plenty of stuff to get you ready for that as we I think Monday will be uh, four weeks from uh, the first game. So we're getting closer and closer. There we go. There we go. And Zakai, the last number five for the Tennessee Volunteers. The last number five ever. He looked darn good in the scrimmage the other day. I think he's made made some more jumps. He's he's going to be a good number five to go out on. I don't think that that should be a retired number. Chris Lofton was awesome. Number five, like that's a great number. Can't do it. Out. Uh, the verdict is out. Just let other people be number five. Just honor him in another way. Just raise the jersey and the rafters, whatever. It's great. I mean, I like Chris Lofton, friend of the pot, but like, I don't know. That's a bad take. There's plenty of numbers that people can wear there's number five is a good uh, one it is a good one it is a good one but you have what six times five you got 30 numbers to choose from you can find you can find other good ones i don't know can it be unretired in like 10 years that's what it should be it's like you unretire <laughs> after a certain amount of time when people forget can it be unretired when a really big recruit wants to wear number five yes that's how it should work that is how it should work is like they get permission. Like you basically have to get permission from the to guy. Where, yeah. Where if he's like, okay, yeah, you can have it. Like, that's fine. You can have it. Yeah. Like if Nico went to Peyton was like, I want 16. <laughs> Peyton's like, all right, uh, if you want to follow. Okay. <laughs> Good what luck. What a move that would be. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, this was great per usual, my friend. Safe travels to Baton Rouge, Ryan. And uh, we'll check back in uh, next week. Man following an LSU game on the road and then Alabama that following weekend. It's going to be uh, a crazy, crazy next week or so here on Rocky Top, and uh, we'll talk about it then. That'd be great. Probably won't be much to talk about. All right. The Thursday afternoon edition of the Chase Moose Podcast rolls along here with a first-timer. No, not Dennis Pitta. No, not Dennis Pitt on this podcast for YouTube steps. Not uh, this time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but a fun, fun guest for you guys here. We have Jerem Jordan, uh, BYU Nation, uh, the BYU Cougs. Did you hear about this? Did you see this? Pretty good football team. And uh, things are going uh, pretty well there. They're playing in Vegas uh, this weekend against Notre Dame uh, and just uh, some monstrosities of a uniform for the team over there in South Bend. BYU did their part. The Black... Uh, uniforms look clean. They look great. BYU is always just top-notch uniforms. Can't say the same for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and just what they're bringing to to Vegas on Saturday. But Jerem, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Chase? Thanks for uh, having me on, man. 
not too bad not too bad how do you feel about the uniforms do you do the fans and do you guys like the black or no we don't like it oh we love it okay oh. we love it yeah the the black and the royal is this awesome mix mm -hmm. and, uh the reveal was pretty cool uh as well so puka nakua one of your star receivers he grew up in vegas and one oh. of the kids that was on his little league teams growing up mm -hmm. was dana white's son so huh. he's got a connection to the ufc that's how they got that hooked up really interesting so how did the fans feel about this did, did you want it. this in provo or did you want to do this oh I oh, wanted it in provo in fact when they signed this up to be in vegas a lot of BYU fans were were bugged yeah because Notre dame signed a four home two road series essentially uh -huh. two two and ones and then they hadn't delivered since 2014 on the home game mm -hmm. and every year it was a talking point when's Notre dame gonna Come to Provo. When are they going to mm -hmm. come to Provo? Because they came in 2004 uh, and they lost. Yeah. So BYU fans were like, let's do this <laughs> again. Let's go. Mm -hmm. BYU went there in 12 and 13, lost a really tight game in 12. 13 was a 10-point game in the fourth quarter. BYU loses that game. Mm -hmm. um, in 12, BYU feels like it should have won that game. That's mm -hmm. undefeated Notre Dame that gets blown out by Alabama and so on. Yeah, so a ton of frustration. A lot of fans weren't happy that BYU sort of gave in and went to Vegas. But listen, for a long time, BYU could have just said, hey, buy it out and we're good. But BYU got more money than they would have from the buyout for having this game in Vegas. And they got a game with Notre Dame in BYU's second favorite stadium in the world. There are a ton of BYU fans in Las Vegas. There's huh. a lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that like the Cougars. Uh -huh. BYU's played UNLV historically there a bunch. They opened the season with Arizona last year, and BYU had 80% of the fans in that stadium. Now, 80% of the tickets went to Notre Dame for this. It's a Shamrock Series game. They are the home team. Oh, but, then why are they wearing white? Just their choice. Okay. Uh, but BYU's going to load that thing up as much as possible because I don't think that the formerly fifth-ranked team in the country in Notre Dame is going to show up in the same way they were they are at two and two having lost to Marshall a couple weeks mm -hmm. ago. So B BYU is four and one ranked 16th. Certainly on paper looks like a tremendous team, which BYU is, but the last two weeks, BYU's not, well, last three weeks, BYU's not played great. Like mm -hmm. out of Oregon really got handled after the Baylor win. And then the last two weeks against Mountain West competition where BYU expected to win big. Uh, well, Vegas at least was saying as much. Cougars put up 38 points, but they allow 24 and 26 points. Fan base feel a little weird about BYU's inability to establish a consistent run game with an offensive line they thought was good. Jaron Hall's been incredible. That's been the best thing about BYU football this year. But it's interesting with Notre Dame because obviously Notre Dame's flawed and vulnerable, but it's Notre Dame, man. Like anytime you beat Notre Dame, even if they stink, that's a good win. So we'll see what BYU musters this week in this matchup. Well, we'll get more into that in a second. And it's also, it's interesting you bring up like Notre Dame's just kind of duck in Provo. You know what stinks, man? We could have done this podcast in person next year. And my Tennessee Volunteers, we ducked out of it. We yep. got Nashville. Do you know what it is? Like, we saw what happened to Baylor, and it's uh, these top 10 programs. <laughs> well, you saw what happened in Knoxville. Yes, well, that, well, we don't have to go back into Double that. Double OT. Yeah, that was a great game. Crazy game. Yeah, it was. Crazy. It was a crazy game. But it's one of those where, I guess, I mean, there's a possibility it's Nico's opener, and you don't want a true five-star freshman going to uh, – Provo to kick off his uh, college football career and I mean they spun it as like recruiting thing putting it in Nashville and the uh, with Virginia but I mean 
you know what's interesting is the fans don't want that. So like the fans would rather lose at Provo and do a once in a lifetime potentially destination because like I would go like I'm I'm there like I'm pr- gorgeous. SEC gorgeous. The West isn't a thing that happens a ton. Yes. You don't need to travel. And, so the fact that Arkansas yeah. is coming here next week is a big deal. Yes. Um, and those fans, I guarantee you, the Arkansas fans that you guys uh, meet up with and see around town, they're just going to be grateful to be there because they're just like, this is awesome. We never have a reason to go to Provo and we get to go see this beautiful stadium oh, yeah. and just yeah. experience uh, Utah and all that good stuff that it has to offer. But like Nashville, every Tennessee fan knows it. Nashville, like every Tennessee fan's been uh, is familiar with Nashville. Like it's no, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And I, I know of a lot of fans that were really upset that they because like they booked a flight a year ahead of time that they were going to be going to Provo and it's like it's just it's a bummer because I remember uh listening to some other Tennessee fans talk about like meeting the BYU fans who came in to uh Knoxville for that game and just how excited they were and just how much fun they had in Knoxville and just being able to go to a big time SEC program and obviously they won so they felt really great uh leaving the game as well but it's, I mean, who knows when the next time uh, BYU fans will be, have a reason to go to Knoxville, Tennessee and go to the Coliseum and be there. I mean, it's just one of those things college football ma- decision makers, they just completely overlook because the fans 1000% would have preferred uh, the travel yes. and go to those once in a lifetime, even if it's a loss. They want home games. Yeah. Uh, and that'll be interesting in the college football playoff. Like the quarterfinals are going to be home games. Then they're going to go neutral side after that. Yep. Which I get in the playoffs. Like it's the playoffs, whatever. But in the regular season, there's not this, you know, in like this game in Vegas. Allegiant mm-hmm. Stadium is unbelievable. I was at the Arizona game last year. Like that stadium's incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, playing Arizona was whatever. Arizona's not that good. BYU won the game. But um, in this, in that stadium against Notre Dame would be spectacular. It, it really would be. So and yeah, it's a bummer that Tennessee's not coming here. It, uh, someone someone said in the press box in 2019 that someone overheard. Uh, someone from the uh, athletic department from Tennessee saying, no, there's no way we're playing that game. <laughs> but, for, but for BYU, you think about it, it's probably a good thing because, well, I would have loved to have Tennessee here, but BYU's already going to Arkansas next year. Mm-hmm. So first year in the Big 12, you're going to play more P5s than you've ever played in a season in BYU history. The the record right now, I believe, is uh, seven, maybe eight. Which is and, kind of surprising because it feels like y'all's schedule has been loaded year over year. Yeah, just that many P5s as an independent, you don't yeah. need to do it. All you need, like, you're not Boise State where you're only playing like one or two, mm-hmm. but you're winning. And then you play a G5 <laughs> schedule after mm-hmm. that. But you don't want to be an actual P5 because then you're going to go six and six. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? So to make a splash. And last year, BYU played seven, went six and one. Like, that mm-hmm. was this anomaly. Typically, BYU's won. Yeah, we're three. the Pac 12 South champions. Pac 12, t- you know, you know, mm-hmm. five and oh, let's go. What's up, you? <laughs> So yeah, it was it was uh, it was fun. That was fun last year. And the Pac-12 was down. That's probably why BYU goes five and zero. This and this year BYU loses the championship to Oregon, if you will. Yeah. But uh, no, it's going to be a challenge and fun. And so I'm of the opinion that yeah, one Power Five team in non-conference is plenty, especially next year when BYU is going to have a lot of its great players gone after a, an incredible three-year run that we hope is another ten-plus win season and finishing ranked. Like right now. The Zach Wilson, Jaron Hall era is a pretty special time at quarterback for BYU and for the teams. It's been awesome. Who did y'all replace Tennessee with? Uh, let's see. Sam Houston State. Oh. Um, a winnable game. Yeah. Who is going from FCS to FBS. Yeah, I think uh, that's... And then Southern Utah and then at Arkansas. Okay. Um, and then the big well, one. Say it again. 
and then the Big 12. And we don't know what that schedule looks like. We don't don't know if it's – we think it's nine games. We don't know what year. Is it the first year of five home, four road? We're jumping in. Yeah. We're going to see how warm or not that pool is, you know. But we're we're excited to be in the Big 12. We're so excited. But it's going to be make a bowl game standard next year. It's going to be different. I'm wondering if Texas and Oklahoma get out before that. Um, And if we – I don't think so. So then you might get Texas or Oklahoma on the schedule. I guarantee we will. Okay. I, I think the league will do that. Like, I'm not saying from sources. I'm just saying the league will hook it up. Like, <laughs> also, they will punish Texas and Oklahoma and make them go to the edges, I bet, which yeah. is UCF, West Virginia, Utah. That's that's my sense here. Yeah. Although the new commissioner, Brett Yormark, may not have the same sort of uh, negative association that, you know, mm-hmm. But he still kind of works for the ADs around the conference. And I'm sure the rest of the Big 12 ADs are like, no, you can absolutely uh, make do him, your work. Make them run around a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And trust me, Oklahoma and, and, and Texas, BYU is a combined five and one all time versus those schools. Yeah. So that would be fun. And Texas still has nightmares about one Taysom Hill, the white dude with the knee brace. Yeah. For I still have nightmares about him. He, he ran all over uh, uh, the Falcons in week one this week. The dude just never goes away. He's, he's so he's, annoying. He's so awesome. He's he's uh he's one of the kind man. Um, what's the biggest difference between Jaron Hall and Zach Wilson for you? So so Zach was more gunslinger ish, more mm-hmm. um, that like like I think they have similar arm strength. This is a good mm-hmm. question. No one's asking this. Great question. Um, J- Jaron Hall uh takes fewer risks. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing with Jaron. Mm-hmm. The, the dude turns it over once every eighty-seven touches. Like he does not turn it over. He, BYU has one giveaway this year in five games. That's number one in the country. Notre Dame, by the way, has one takeaway. They don't take it away. Mm. So that's going to be fun to watch. But Zach took a few more risks. Zach was still good. His mm. giveaway number, I want to say, was in the 40s, yeah. um, which is incredible. You go back in BYU history, typically between 15 and 25 is that is that number um, for giveaways per touch. So uh, Or touch per giveaway. Mm-hmm. Jaron Hall doesn't turn it over, like, and he's got he's extremely accurate, extremely poised, super calm, like first starting black quarterback in BYU history, which is a cool note as well for him. Zach was a guy that wasn't heavily recruited, three star, and BYU turned him into, and he turned himself obviously into a number two pick, which is pretty crazy. So we feel like BYU's been QBU. Like you look mm-hmm. back at the history of the quarterback position here, and it's pretty special. I feel like that's starting to come back. Um, yeah. and, and with these two guys, like Jaron projected his highest first round, I'd love for my Seahawks to grab him, um, at like the 12th pick at six and 11. I don't know. But, Gino is making a case that he's the guy for eh, a little bit. This is no, you don't, you know, you're not competing for a Super Bowl, Gino. Um, but yeah, you, you want to make the playoffs, Gino, just, yeah. it's all good. But th- that's the biggest difference. The, the sort of risk reward there, Zach, um, a little more of a run threat, although Jaron's a great run threat. He j- just has decided he's going to be mostly a thrower because mm-hmm. he broke his ribs in game one running too much last mm. year. He played through it. We didn't know this till after the year, but that dude's a cu- tough customer, man. He is, and, and he is cool under pressure. Personality-wise, what's the biggest difference between them? Jaron's more, um, more like business. Zach would have a little more fun. Obviously, a lot of that in the offseason uh, in, in the news. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, both both are, like, extremely good at quarterbacking, like yeah. the profession of quarterbacking. When I would talk to Zach um, last year, and we did multiple, like, film reviews of stuff after mm-hmm. games, I learned a ton. 
and what he's seeing and what he's thinking like Jaron extremely cerebral as well mm-hmm. um it's it's been awesome and and Zach got the starting job midway through his freshman year and you know left after his junior Jaron has waited his time as a sophomore he got a couple of starts had multiple concussions he was out sat out the next year with a hip injury while Zach did his thing in 2020 and uh, now it's been Jaron's deal the last two years. And no quarterback in viewer history. You think of all the great ones. Young, mm. Mann, Nielsen, Mark Wilson, Ty Detmer, uh, all these guys. Steve Young. Steve Young, of course. Steve Young, come on now. All of them didn't play that kind of schedules that Jaron Hall's had to play. And nobody's mm. won more Power 5 games than Jaron Hall. Like, this is the modern BYU quarterback at its finest. It's been pretty cool to watch his development. And then... We'll see where it goes the rest of the year because this dude's going to be an NFL draft pick. It just depends where. Who's next at quarterback? That's a good question. So Jacob Conover is a guy that turned down an offer from Alabama, mm. got out of Arizona, played at a very good high school at Chandler that won multiple state titles. He started sophomore through senior year. He's a guy that right now would be the incumbent. I will be surprised, though, if he does not bring in a transfer that competes for that spot right away. Mm. Conover perhaps is the guy. Uh, if I had to guess, he's probably the guy. But I bet BYU will bring somebody in. Because if BYU is going to compete in the Big 12, you need two good quarterbacks. Because as we've seen, quarterbacks get hurt. We've seen that a lot at BYU and elsewhere. Where can BYU be better this year? Run defense. Hmm. Uh, It's not terrible. It's about middle of the pack. But BYU was really on skates against Oregon. Like, just getting blown off the ball. And they expected a different game plan. Elias Mm -hmm. Tui, the defensive coordinator, said that. Didn't adjust in time. Oregon scored on its first five drives. Was up thirty-one nothing, or thirty. Not characteristic for a BYU Kalani Sataki defense. Right. Typically pretty stout there. That was mm-hmm. weird because uh, BYU's gone into Wisconsin, Tennessee, USC, and so on, and won these kind of physical run-heavy yep. matchups. I mean, you talk about Wisconsin; they ran for two hundred plus. BYU still won. Mm-hmm. Like BYU had a guy that outran Jonathan Taylor, uh, <laughs> which was which was crazy. Squally Canada that day. So that's one. Kicking has been an issue. Field goals, like in a Notre Dame game like this week, I feel like a field goal here or there makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And BYU's Jake Oldroyd was a Lou Groza finalist two years ago. This kid was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. This year he's uh, three for eight, and he's missed five in a row from the 30s. So there's a real issue there. Yeah, you all haven't even named a kicker this week, correct? Yeah, I, I doubt it's Jake. I mean, he's they gave him a field goal. Are you late. kicking on Saturday? What? Are you going to kick on Saturday? I might kick on Saturday. That's what I'm asking. Like, are you eligible? What's your eligibility like right now? <laughs> I look uh, younger than I am. I'm not even close to being eligible. But yeah, um, yeah, it's it, that's a tough spot. And mm-hmm. then offensively, the run game has been very inconsistent for BYU, mm. especially the second quarter. Like, it's been terrible. Mm-hmm. So I, we'll see if BYU can establish the run. Notre Dame's got a really nice uh, run defense. Granted, it's about the same as BYU. They're giving up a little more. Uh, per carry, but uh, who knows if Notre Dame woke up against UNC. How does the Kyle Hamilton matchup work for you? Or excuse me, not Kyle Hamilton. Uh, I was going to say, luckily he's gone. Yeah, no, Joseph. What is his <laughs> name? Uh, why I get them confused now. Uh, the new a great safety from Northwestern, uh, who's yes. basically not yeah. been targeted through four games. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'm excited for this yes. matchup because Jaron Hall picks his spots at the right time, and he's not going to be overly aggressive if he doesn't need to. Now, here's the mm-hmm. thing. BYU's got perhaps the most underrated receiver core in the country. Hmm. They just need to be healthy. Like, if BYU's healthy, Puka Nakua is an NFL receiver. He's tremendous. Um, I love Gunnar Romney. Fifth-year guy, has only played one game, last rated his kidney in camp. He played last week. <sighs> that sounds He's back. horrific. 
Yeah, he's he's a dude that's put up like 1,800 yards over his career. BYU, um, a 1,000-yard type of guy. Keanu Hill, his uncle's Roy Williams. His dad is Lloyd, who plays at Texas Tech, All-American. Friday Night Lights uh, mm-hmm. team, by the way. So Keanu went for 160 against Wyoming. Chase Roberts was a guy who went 100-plus against Baylor. He's been out with a kind of a hip issue. Mm-hmm. If BYU can get all these guys in, that's that's super legit. And uh, Notre Dame's – I mean, Notre Dame faced a good UNC offense. Drake May's good young quarterback. This will be the best offense they will have faced uh, this year should those guys be healthy. But if BYU can't run the ball and they're forced to just chuck it, Jaron Hall is good enough to win the game. But you just wonder if you have to rely on that and you can't do anything in the run game. If the Cougars can win that way, and and Jaron Hall's good enough to do it, but you'd hate to be one dimensional if you're BYU. Now that Drew Pine is in there, and what you saw early on uh, in that uh, North Carolina game, and what we've seen from Tyler Buckner to this point, who's out for the year, do you think BYU would have rather faced what we saw the iteration of Notre Dame with Tyler Buckner, the running quarterback, or Drew Pine, more of the pocket guy? Do you, which do you think they would have preferred? Hey, I, I hate third and six when the quarterback runs for first down. That's what mm-hmm. Buckner might have done. But that team lost to Marshall. Like that yep. Buckner-led team lost to Marshall. I know Pine came in and went three for six in that game, but mm-hmm. Pine looks pretty good against yeah. UNC. Granted, that UNC defense not great, but they made him look not great. Uh, three running backs go over 100-plus total offense in that game as well for Notre Dame. So, yeah, Pine, Pine's good, man. He's gaining confidence. They had, I, I think Notre Dame would have preferred not to sit on a bye week there where they played so well, just get into that next game. They've sat, so maybe that momentum is quelled in some way. Who knows? And this isn't a, a long trip for BYU. This is a this is an hour on a plane. This is five hours on a bus for the fans or, or a car. Um, yeah, this, this is a long ways for Notre Dame. So we'll see, man. Uh, Pine's, Pine seems to be pretty good, though, but I'm interested to see if the BYU defense rises up. This is a defense we thought would be much better. They were pretty undisciplined. They had three offside calls at home against mm. Utah State, where it's like no one's cheering to make it loud. Like, what are you doing? They had multiple personal foul penalties. Uncharacteristic stuff. But I expect the BYU team that beat Baylor to show up. Like, the tough, we're way up for this game. We, we're the underdog. People don't, you know, um, Estime says the comment uh, about. Uh, this is the Holy War? He said, hey, our, our our players are better than their players. Yeah. They don't match up. I hope BYU takes that and goes, hey, the Baylor version of us has got to show up here. Mm. Yeah, someone said this is the Holy War on BYU, right, this week? <laughs> Who was that? Well, I, I didn't I didn't hear that one. That's funny though. The Catholics and Mormons, like yeah. yeah. Um, who okay. was it who said that? This oh, Caleb Haynes said it. Um, Caleb Hayes said okay, one yeah. of his cornerbacks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from Kevin Reynolds. Yeah, BYU. It's funny that he said that because I don't know if he's Catholic or Mormon. Well, there you go. Well, maybe that's part of it. Is it the, for for him? I, I don't know. Uh, in Sin City, that is a fun like religious dynamic to this. Yeah. Well, it's it's a great like BYU has all kinds of opportunities here because you have that, which is great. Uh, you can market it that way, but you also had the one which should be every year now, based on like the fact that the 2020's best college football game was BYU Coastal, and that's where all eyes were. Mullets versus Mormons was also an amazing marketing thing, and it was great. It was fun, and it was yeah. awesome. Like that should happen every year. That was a Dude, great thing. Any bowl projection that includes Coastal Carolina, we're always like, yes, right? Okay, yeah. so it was just as big for BYU fans. Yes, that's the mm-hmm. one. Lo- it's the one lost by one yard. Yeah, undefeated. Oh, that one. That one hurt. And obviously, BYU is uber aggressive in taking that game on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, and Coastal's good, good team, good program, yeah. right? Like they they're doing uh great stuff. Great they run a fun but... offense. No one else does what they do yep. on offense. It's fun yep. to watch. No, I would love a rematch there. I just want Coastal to not know until Wednesday. <laughs> That's my only request. Uh, I mean, Jimmy Chabell might be game for it. Um, he, he would be. I think he would be. The biggest surprise for you this season with BYU is what? The BYU doesn't have a run game as consistent as we thought. Uh, hmm. Last year, Tyler Algier was amazing. Set a program record with 1,600 touchdowns. Or, excuse me, yards. over. That'd That's be a, a lot, lot of touchdowns. touchdowns. There's a lot of touchdowns. Uh, 20 plus touchdowns. He's now the starter for the Falcons due to an injury. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Tyler Algier, man. The dude runs hard. That yeah. guy runs hard. He's awesome. And his story is amazing. Go hmm. go check out on YouTube, uh, Tyler Algier, Deep Blue. We did mm-hmm. a story on him that told his story. Deep, Great. Like emotional stuff. He's a good dude, and he deserves every good thing that happens to him. Awesome. No Tyler Algier has been a bigger deal than we thought. Uh, hmm. BYU brought in Christopher Brooks from Cal, a dude that had been successful behind what we thought weren't great Cal offensive lines. Hasn't quite connected. Miles Davis had a great game against Wyoming two games ago. Kind of got banged up a little bit against Utah State. We'll see if he plays. Lapini Katoa is a solid kind of 1B back, but fumbled uh, inside BYU's own 10 uh, mm-hmm. in a recent game. So the trust uh, is, isn't there after he fumbled twice last year against Boise State in a loss. When BYU was ranked tenth and five and zero, so th- all three are good backs. But the fact that Tyler's gone and it hasn't been consistent there—that's been concerning. But Jaron's carried it for BYU, like <laughs> Jaron Hall for president around these parts. He's he's been elite. Yeah, and it's fun. Like Jaron Hall's a fun player to watch play football, and it's just BYU's just a fun watch. They've been a fun watch for a long time now, and it's kind of funny that Kalani Sataki has just kind of settled in. He's been there a sneaky long amount of time now, and you're wondering, like, because I remember uh, during the last couple of head coaching cycles, like, oh, is his name? Where is he going to be considered? Like Arizona was one you saw pop up for him, and we're in Washington. He and yeah. with, and I was told they offered. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's like you can win at BYU. And he's shown that you can win big at BYU. And I don't know, like for you and having covered him, because um, he it doesn't seem like he does a lot of interviews. Um, what what is an underrated attribute about Sataki as a head coach that a lot of the national folks may miss? His person, uh, he's very personable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that comes through in his interviews. He loves Jim Rome. He goes on Jim Rome like once. Well, maybe that's where I miss. Yeah, I don't listen to Jim Rome. Okay. He needs to come on the Chase Thomas podcast. Well, um, you can make that happen, Drew. Like, uh, whatever you got to do. I'll, I would love to talk to Yeah, Coach he's Sataki. extremely personable. His mm-hmm. his players love playing for him. There's some dudes that are like about the games and mm-hmm. about the wins. He's about their lives. This just happens to be the vehicle of them hanging out and going through experiences together. Like, Bronco Mendenhall is a dude that he did care about the individual. Um, in a more disciplinary way, Clint mm-hmm. Taki is more like the fun uncle, and he dances and he's like cares about you as a person, like legitimately. Mm-hmm. And there are people; it's interesting. There have been local kids from Utah County that are really legitimately talented. Puka mm-hmm. Nakua goes to Washington. Kingsley Suamataia goes to Oregon. Puka's brother Samson goes to Utah, mm-hmm. and others. They have come back because of that mm-hmm. relationship with Kalani in recruiting, where it's like. Hey, you didn't pick us, but we want you to know that we love you and you always have a place here if, if you want to be. And then BYU's had some notable Power Five uh, transfers in. Yeah. And now they're massive contributors for BYU. Caleb Hayes is one of those guys, Oregon State kid that mm-hmm. Kalani coached and uh, or recruited at Oregon State when he was yep. there for a year after Utah. 
Yeah. Who was it? The one year was that? Who was that? Gary Anderson? Was Gary. That? Yep. Yeah. Gary, who he had connections with from the Utah staff previously. At connections everywhere, everywhere. Um, it seems like that. That's interesting. The biggest difference is in Bronco. I wonder if he gets back because that he wants be... to. Yeah. You think so? No, he, he's going to get one of these. We'll see how pro- high profile a team like Nebraska wants to go. Hmm. Um, but Bronco would honestly, what he did at BYU from 05 to 15 was incredible. That yeah. that team had gone through three losing seasons in a row. I'm talking about that hadn't happened since the 70s. Like Lavelle had this thing on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Heisman Trophy winner, national championship, all this stuff. He he took a program that had some off-the-field issues that are, are well-documented, and he got them in line. They go 6-6 six and six with a top-10 offense. The next year, 11-2, and 11-2, 10-3, 11-2. That four-set year, uh, four-year set of 43 wins, most in BYU history. Like, mm-hmm. got him back to national relevance. John Beck's a second-round pick. Like, it was incredible. And they beat Utah, and they won conference championships, guided BYU into independence. And then uh, he, he could do – I mean, if he was at Nebraska or Arizona State or Wisconsin or wherever, like, there's some good gigs out there that need a Bronco man at home. You know where I put him um, is Colorado. Colorado's a spot where they need to stop thinking. Just go with someone you know is just going to raise the floor and establish a culture and just don't – who's not going to worry about the money, who's not going to worry about, like, the resources. He's just going to coach and establish uh, yeah, his way. Yeah. Where, where academics is is number one, right? You, you yeah. got to do it in spite of that. And he got a team to the Orange Bowl. Thank you, Clemson, for making the play. <laughs> but, like – Robert Anaya's his OC was incredible, by the way. You're seeing that with Brendan Armstrong. Syracuse, yeah. He's not the same without mm-hmm. Robert Anaya and Jason Beck as the quarterback coach who were mm-hmm. at who played at BYU and were at BYU with Bronco. Like yeah. BYU fans, by the way, pay a ton of uh, attention to all those coaches that leave. Because if they're a former Cougar player, mm-hmm. they're one of us mm-hmm. here. So you go, hey, look at Syracuse. You know, like yeah. Virginia was like BYU no East. Um, for a couple of years like honestly mm-hmm. when they came last year and played it was this big homecoming like mm-hmm. it was awesome and it was a crazy game 66 to 49 the BYU won mm-hmm. uh were you at least a little concerned when Jeff Grimes left for Baylor no and I don't mean that as a disrespect to Jeff at all or Eric mm-hmm. Mateos the offensive line coach that went with him we knew that Aaron Roderick was going to be good because okay. Aaron again is a guy that played at BYU one of the mm-hmm. funniest guys he had been at Utah for several years where they had muzzled him and, and those Utah offenses didn't flourish. Unmuzzled, Aaron Roderick produced a number two pick and now has Jaron Hall. Mm-hmm. Like, this dude is legit. And BYU has been one of the best teams in the country since the middle of 2019 to now when Aaron took over the play calling duties midway through that season, by the way. Hmm. Some people still don't believe me. I'm like, I'm not <laughs> saying I think. I know he took over play calling duties and it mm-hmm. changed that season, BYU goes five and two to finish, and then 2020, 11 and one, and then last year, 10 and three, and this year, four and one. Like, this dude is a genius, and he is awesome, and BYU is lucky to have him. Is he happy there? You think he stays long term, or do you think yeah. he gets a head coaching job? I, ble- I believe he is. Okay. I, Aaron could be a head coach if he wanted. I think mm-hmm. he's very content as an offensive coordinator. I don't know this. That's just the sense I get. Mm-hmm. But um, as long as, yeah, he's he's paid competitively here. And uh, he keeps producing quarterbacks. I think he. I think he's happy at his alma mater, BYU. It's a special place. Like there's, mm. there's a unique connection between the players, who who took that field with Lavelle Edwards, especially, mm. and and the desire to be here. Like it, it is tied obviously into the religion of the Church mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ of Latter Saints. It's an awesome place to be. 
It really is. And there are a lot of people that come back. There's a mm. lot of brothers on the team. There's a lot of sons of kids who played here. Like I would I don't know this, but I would guess it's more than most, if not all universities. Like BYU has a special connection with the people that play here. They love being around here and coming mm. back. And those, so that's why I say like, hey, people could definitely move on. But like Kalani wants he he is choosing to be paid less to be at BYU. Hmm. He can absolutely go to Oregon and Washington and make double or triple. Like, yeah. But it's not about the money. It's about this place. It's about mm-hmm. the legacy of BYU football, of Lavelle, of the quarterbacks, of this new era. And be, like, it's a it's a unique spot. I don't I don't think people quite get it unless you're here. I love it. Um, we'll end on this. If I was on my flight to Provo next year, and we actually did UT uh, BYU, um, what would you have recommended? How how should I have approached game day uh, in Provo? What's what's the best? How how do I approach yeah. it? You gotta hike the Y. So okay. there's there's the the Y's on the mountain, and it's uh, like a fifteen hundred foot hike. Okay, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's exhausting, but the view over Utah Valley and Utah Lake mm-hmm. is unbelievable. Uh, we take you to we take you to J Docs. Now it's hey hot dog. What no? Oh, it, like hot dogs are awesome. Yeah, it's good. Or a Brazilian uh, steakhouse called Tucanos. That's a little heavy for lunch, but yeah, you never yep. know. Yep. We take you to Cougar Canyon. Uh, okay. Two hours before the game, it's buzzing outside the stadium. We've got our live BYU TV pregame show going. You can watch games, tailgate, the whole deal. That'd be mm. uh, that'd be super fun. We'd get you a Cougar Tail, which is like this 18 inch maple bar, which is like like Cosmo the Cougar. Um, yeah. It's like, um, it's a big old maple bar donut. It's delicious. Oh, wow. You'd have to watch the Cougarettes and Cosmo do their thing. Like uh-huh. the, the dancers from BYU, they're super legit. They go viral all the time. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah. There may be a flyover. Uh, okay. The view next to the mountains is like second to none. Maybe Air Force hangs mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of that. But yeah, it's it's special, man. It's special. I'm, I'm hoping you can get out here for a game for whatever reason in the future. Yeah, I got to do it. I mean, if not Tennessee, Utah, BYU is definitely on that list. Dude, like, yes, do it. Let's see. 25 is the next one in Provo. 24 in Salt Lake. Okay, there you go. Uh, what about 2023? Is it next year? Where is it next year? They're not They're not playing. Utah chose to play Florida this year on the road and then host. Are they the- really not playing next year? No. Utah, BYU playing. is not playing football against Utah each other. Utah chose to play Florida over BYU. That's insanity. I know. I don't like it. It should be allowed though. That like shouldn't be their choice. Like it should be one of those where a college again <laughs> as the dude. college football czar, I just step in and I'm like, no, that's not happening. I don't well, care. Here's like, the deal. Yeah, I I grew up a Pac-12 fan, living in uh-huh. Washington, and then moving to Utah as a kid, and or Pac-10, and I would like the Pac-12 to dissolve and for Utah to and four corners as we call yeah. it to join the Big 12. That way, that game happens every year. That you might because I, I like that more than I like the league. You might be getting that. It seems like that's where we might be headed. Come on. I mean, that'd be fun. Um, Jerem, this has been an absolute blast. I appreciate you making the time as my dog, Khaleesi, is hungry. And I don't know if you could hear that in the background here. As she's ready to eat <laughs> Khaleesi, dinner. Khaleesi, that's great. Big, yeah, uh, Game of Thrones, love it. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do the good folks keep up with your work and everything you've got going on this week? Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, check out uh, BYUSN.com, mm-hmm. BYUSN.com. Uh, BYU Sports Nation's our daily show. Myself and Spencer Linton, we do uh, weekdays on BYU TV and BYU Radio. At Jerem Jordan on Twitter. But uh, yeah, we're, we're stoked to be in the Big 12 next year, and it's going to be fun. This was great, Chase. I appreciate the time, man. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to do this again soon.
All right, we're back here on the Chase Mills Podcast as we're taping this on a Thursday afternoon. First timer, Jake Arthur, is here. Jake, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm awesome. Thanks for having me, Chase. Thank you for being here. Um, so there's a lot of crossover, and it's funny because coming into the year, uh, me and the fellow Atlanta sports guys, we were talking about, like, we thought the Falcons, this was just going to be a rough rebuilding year, right? We mm. thought, okay. We need to find somewhere else to uh, latch on emotionally because it's hard to latch on to a team that's quote unquote tanking in the NFL. It's a long season and you're just like, what do I really want to be emotionally invested in Marcus Mariota and uh, Cordero Patterson and also always be emotionally invested in Cordero Patterson is always my uh, line of thinking, but more of like an (laughs) eliminate Zacchaeus type issue, Brian Edwards and uh, this, that and the other. But the Colts made sense. Matt Ryan, who was done dirty here in Atlanta, um, he find he they did him like at the very end, putting him where he probably wanted to go. A great spot for him in Indianapolis. Then Julio was a free agent, and I was like, oh, the the Colts are thin at receiver. Just bring in Julio too, and then I can just transform all of my emotional energy right. <laughs> this year to the Colts and a Matt and Julio reunion. Obviously, Julio ends up in Tampa Bay. Uh, ugh, gross. Um, but mm-hmm. Matt goes there, and we thought this would be one of the more seamless fits where they were the favorites coming in. And look, the season's long. A lot can change. Uh, we're only four weeks into it. But for me, it's just so weird that the Colts feel so, on the outside looking in, average. And mm. I I wonder if you have gotten the same sense. Like, if you had to explain why the Colts just feel bleh, through the first month of the season. How would you do that, Jake? Yes, I I agree. Coming into it, you know, there was a lot of hype and expectations. Uh, Myself, I assumed they should be the favorites in the AFC South, which they still might be. It's a division that no one really wants to run away with it, apparently. Um, But man, it's, it's part of, part of their issues are explainable and the other parts are just head scratching. So the offensive line is causing kind of a domino effect with everything. And its struggles in itself are are inexplicable. They have these pillars and, you know, Quentin Nelson, Ryan Kelly, and Braden Smith. But Nelson's really the only one holding up his end of the bargain. Uh, Kelly does not look like himself. Smith had a terrible start to the season. Uh, They already had to replace their starting right guard, Danny Pinter, with Will Fries. Uh, Matt Pryor is okay. Like, they could probably survive with him there at left tackle, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them move on to Bernard Ryman here soon. Uh, so the offensive line is is really making things struggle. In part, I think it's it's causing Matt Ryan to not look like what everyone expected. Um, I'm, now, I'm now seeing that he's not going to be the type of guy, he's not going to be a Peyton Manning or Andrew Luck Superman type that can just erase all the deficiencies. Like He has to have help. He can be a really good quarterback, but he has to have help. Mm-hmm. Uh, the protection the receivers getting separation, things like that. So I don't think that part of it's a failure yet. But the offensive line, if they don't improve, then the whole thing will just be a meltdown. Um, they, they've just been really bad. Jonathan Taylor, who looks superhuman at times, has not been given very many um, running lanes. And he's kind of creating all of his own yards. And even when he does have running lanes now, it seems like he doesn't know 
he doesn't have a feel for this offensive line particularly. He doesn't really know how to read their holes that they are opening. So it's kind of rough all around with that, and that creates turnovers. Matt Ryan is fumbling at a record pace right now. He's got nine. Uh, he had he had ten go. He had ten last week before the stats guys corrected one. So that's really rough. Turnovers, of course. Uh, that that frequent amount of them with his interceptions. I think he has five. It puts the defense in a tough spot, and the defense honestly has played pretty well overall. Uh, I think they're another group that's holding up their end of the bargain, but the offense and their instability is just totally putting the defenses back against the wall. The offense, if you look at DVOA from football outsiders, they're like far and away the 32nd ranked defense or uh, offense. So it's just, uh, man. But And the other part of it, I think, is coaching and scheme related. And, you know, part the, the part that comes in, I was talking about being – inexplicable is how flat they look uh, at times in, in their three in their three non wins. Cause they have a tie in there. They've been behind by at least 17 points in each of them. Hmm. And you know, you ask them about it after the game. They're like, I don't know. We had a great week of practice. Yada, yada. <laughs> and they got killed in the last two weeks of 2021 when all they needed to do was beat either the, the Raiders or Jaguars just to get into the playoffs. And that was two obviously winnable games. So the reason, you know, them coming in looking so flat, unprepared, things like that, no one knows what's causing that. Um, you can look at the offensive line, which is kind of having a trickle-down effect on things. But the other part of it is why do they look so unprepared? Uh, no one really seems to have an answer for that, unfortunately. That's that's interesting because it just seems like Frank Reich and this group, I mean, everyone's been penciling in the Colts to break through and win this division uh, mm-hmm. year over year. They're everyone's favorite offseason team. Everyone loves the way they build. Everyone loves the way they draft. And yet there just seems to be something missing from them making the leap. Like you mentioned Matt Ryan and he's not an Andrew Luck, uh, Peyton Manning, just uh, cover up all the weaknesses and the holes of any type of team. If it, they have struggling offensive lines, the running lanes aren't opening for Jonathan Taylor. So Matt Ryan's got to do more stuff. I mean, is it still a Matt Ryan problem? Do you think he's regressed from, I mean, what we saw in Atlanta the last couple of years? Do you think, um, some of it falls on Matt Ryan, just not playing up to what, uh, folks in Indianapolis expected of him, or do you think it's far, far bigger? And Matt Ryan, with a better offensive line play and Jonathan Taylor being able to run the ball more, is more than capable of leading this team to uh, where they want to go. So I think part of it is Ryan, but I I think he almost is like shell shocked now. You hmm. know, he's kind of he's adopted some new issues that I don't think he had in Atlanta. Like ball security was never a huge issue for him, right? Like he'd fumble mm-hmm. occasionally when a sack. Now it seems like every time he gets hit or sacked with any impact, that ball's coming out. And mm. it, that's really been the case. He's fumbling constantly right now. And I think that's a new habit that's been adopted because of how much he's getting hit here. He's under constant duress. I'm not sure that he trusts what's in front of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's part of it. And he's also made some just kind of head scratching throws some interceptions that have just been like where was that like and it looks like that's probably miscommunication with the receivers so you kind of you kind of side on on the part of the veteran quarterback who's been around for 15 years on that one so there's some growing pains you know feeling out the protection or ladder up in front of him and meshing with these new pass catchers I think it'll be fine 
eventually if the offensive line can figure it out. Because uh, things with Phillip Rivers a couple years ago were a little rocky in the beginning as well. They, they had some really bad losses and performances up until about the midway point of the season. And then it looked like Phillip Rivers' offense. Like he was in control of everything. And that's kind of what I anticipate here. Again, the, the, if the offensive line itself can't can't figure it out, I hope the coaches have a plan for it. You know, adopt a quicker passing game. You know, give more help to the offensive line. Do something. Uh, but it's just, it's it's rough right now. And I, I think it's unfortunately having a negative effect on Ryan to where he's not really able to perform like the guy they thought they were getting. Have Colt fans been just kind of extremely frustrated about the front office's insistence on just building everywhere else and just being like, all right, we're going to throw in the veteran Phillip Rivers. We're going to throw in the veteran Carson Wentz. We're going to throw in the veteran Matt Ryan. Instead of just taking the lumps of spending one high draft pick on a quarterback the last couple of years, or has it been like, all right, well, it's a little bit different way of team building. Um, we like where you're drafting in other ways. So it's like, we're not going to bang you for that. And like, Hindsight's twenty twenty with Carson Wentz, but ultimately, like you said, they were still an, a gimme in Jacksonville away from making the playoffs last year. Phillip Rivers obviously had a lot of success. Matt Ryan still TBD there, or has it like which, which way is the wind blowing on that front, and has it been blowing the last couple of years? Yeah, so things are starting to shift. Uh, even those of us in in the local media who uh, we've given the front office and Chris Ballard a pass for a while because even though we may not agree with all the moves and the total approach, we understand what they're doing and why. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that, that earns you a little more patience, especially with a roster that seems to be able to stay afloat despite a new quarterback each year. But now it's really coming to a head because you're investing too much money and resources and positions. Not that the, these positions don't matter, but they're not they're not the weighted positions between wins and losses. Your left guard is the highest paid guard in history. You have a $20 million linebacker. You know, your center has regressed and is the second highest paid center in the league. Your right tackle was a turnstile and he's one of the highest paid tackles. Offensive line obviously is important, but that unit as a whole has a ton of money sunk into it. It seems like they're too apprehensive in just taking a quarterback for the sake of taking one. They don't want to just take a guy to do it. They want to take the right guy. But it's like, how strict are your parameters to not just do it? Because we've seen them. They traded the 13th overall pick a few years ago for DeForest Buckner, which it's a high enough pick. Uh, That was the same draft with Justin Herbert. They held the 34th overall pick in that. That's an option to where they could have packaged that pick and that 13th pick plus whatever what whatever else assets to try and get in that top five to get someone like Herbert or Tua. Burrow was going to be number one no matter what. Um, but, you know, like just take a chance. Like that's what they need to do now because what they're doing right now is just they're just putting themselves up in a blanket of mediocrity and just being comfortable with being competitive and occasionally getting some big wins and things like that. But to go to the next level, they're going to have to get that difference-making quarterback. And they're just going to have to like get into the modern NFL. It's about offense. It's about explosive plays and rushing the passer. Like That's about all you need to do to win a Super Bowl anymore. Look at these teams that are competitive year after year. They have the quarterback. 
when it matters, they're able to get to the quarterback and they've got some playmakers for that quarterback to get the ball to. And that's just not how the Colts are built right now. They they like to draft and develop and reward their own talent. That's great. But sometimes those players aren't the ones that are going to win and lose you games. Like it's you, You've just got to sink it in to a position like quarterback that truly matters. Where are they most vulnerable on offense and where are they most vulnerable on defense through a month of the season? Uh, so aside from the offensive line, obviously, <laughs> they're – their uh, receiver group really got exposed in week two when Michael Pittman Jr. was out with his mm. injury uh, because Alec Pierce was also out the same week. So their top two outside receivers were, were both out. Um, you know, guys like Ashton Doolin and Paris Campbell were leading the way, Desmond Patman, and it just was ugly. Mm-hmm. And part of it's the offensive line not giving – the receivers enough time to get separation, get open and things like that. But uh, they really, I mean, Alec Pierce probably is going to be a very good complimentary piece to Michael Pittman, but it feels like they're missing one real dynamic pass catcher, whether that's at tight end or receiver, it could be either or nowadays. It doesn't have to be in, you know, in just one spot. But I think if you're looking at something, Michael Pittman Jr. has become very, very valuable because of what's, not behind him interesting um the biggest surprise though for you has been where it could be a player it could be uh decisions the the coaching staff has made uh one particular week what has been the biggest surprise for you uh so if the offensive line is gonna be as bad as it is i i think things you can do are you know get screens going get a quick passing game going and then so that leads into why has Naheem Hines not been used more hmm. uh, coming, coming into the season? He was one of the hottest, you know, he was one of the, the hottest guys you could think of in terms of fantasy. Uh, if you're looking at it from that perspective, like he's going to have a big year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coaches were talking up, the other players were talking him up. around here. We know that when there's a good quarterback under center that will use running backs in the passing game, that Hines is going to be a huge factor. And Matt Ryan is not afraid to get the ball to, to running backs. So the fact that he has just not been used very much at all when he is one of the more dangerous multi-purpose threats in the NFL, it's really it's really been frustrating. Uh, I'm pretty sure every week we've been like, why is Naheem Hines not more involved? And it might happen uh, tonight, Thursday, against the Broncos just by proxy of Jonathan Taylor being out. Um, but it's it's almost malpractice to have this dangerous weapon on offense that you're just not using enough. Yeah, that is, that is odd. Um, especially just with Frank Reiches in the past, like that just seems like something you would not expect from him to not involve Naheem Hines, uh, right. to the fullest extent. It just, it's odd. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tennessee game though, what did you learn about the team that you did not already, uh, have a good feeling on and coming out of it you're like all right this is this is something that we have to monitor this is something about them that it's just this is who they are well um shoot i would say i would say that they're on i i've mentioned this in every question i'm pretty sure you've asked me but they're only going to get <laughs> as far as the offensive line will take them it is who they are right now is Quentin uh, Nelson been that bad? Is it? Is it's there... not been Quentin. He's he's been the bright spot, really. Okay. Uh, 
Which is a problem because um, everyone online is like, Quinn is just, is he ever going to be the elite offense uh, guard again this year? Well, it's kind of like the Matt Ryan thing where yeah. you can't hit your peak unless the things around you are going well, also. Like, he's mm-hmm. playing really well. Like, he, you know, he's still Pro Bowl, all pro caliber guy. But if your left tackle next to you keeps doing this and that and your center is leaking all these protections and everything, and you kind of have to keep your focus in multiple areas, then it doesn't allow you to focus on your job solely altogether. Um, so yeah, they've tried some new things. They have, again, they have a new right guard. Um, Danny Pinter started the first few games and they replaced him with Will Fries who looked fine. I mean, he didn't look perfect, but he definitely looked like an upgrade. Um, but yeah, they're only gonna, they're only going to get as far as the offensive line will allow them to. Otherwise it's going to be a really ugly season because the, the coaching hasn't, shown to be able to transcend that and adjust much to how bad their line is. Like normally I, I've had former quarterbacks tell me, you know, when, when you know your line is really bad, you mm-hmm. adjust to it. You get those quick passes out. You do this and that to beat the pressure that's coming at you. And the Colts just aren't showing that adaptability. I don't know why. Uh, Cause Frank Reich has always been a, a pretty good play caller and able to adjust and do this and that. But I, they might be naive about what they're able to do right now. Is he a sneaky guy to be on like hot seat watch? Like a lot of people are not talking about, is there a possibility yeah. that? Yeah, because I don't anticipate that owner Jim Irsay is, is going to be able to deal with this type of performance much longer. Uh, like mm-hmm. if they don't show improvement or they keep having these games where they're just getting completely embarrassed and outclassed, Something's got to give, and I don't. I don't think that Ursay would have a coach be fired midway through a season. So I don't see that. Mm. But if there's not improvement with this team, I definitely think it opens up the possibility to look in a new direction at head coach, possibly GM as well after the season. Man, um, the biggest thing though that you're looking for this week out of the team is what. Yeah, so this week it's they're kind of evenly matched. The Broncos have been a bit disappointing as well. Uh, I think if they're just able to clean up their all, all of their self-inflicted wounds, that they'll be fine and they can win. Uh, again, you know the miscommunications and things, all all that stuff is correctable. Uh, like protection issues and you know things aren't being called properly because there's free rushers all the time. Like, if the defense is blitzing against the Colts, they'll get there because people just aren't picking it up. Um, kind of getting on top of that things and not turning the ball over at such an alarming rate. Like, they're negative six right now in turnover differential. I think that's second to last in the league. Uh, that's easy stuff to not do. So, like, if they just take care of things and don't make those huge errors, because, again, that's not things the opponents are forcing them into. That's stuff they're doing to themselves take care of that and i do think they can beat the broncos if they just get out of their own way a little bit well what do you think ultimately happens here based on what you've seen for the past month do you think they get out of their own way they figure some stuff out naheem hines gets involved the screens are back they get a little bit healthier the offensive line improves a little bit do you see this still being a playoff team like what is your gut telling you about which way this thing goes uh, so they'll stay they'll stay in it as long as the AFC South is how it is. Um, the Texans aren't really a contender. The Titans are in just as odd of a spot as the Colts are. And the Jaguars, 
they they're competitive, but I don't think they're ready necessarily to be a playoff team. It doesn't seem like so. The Colts are still in it long term this season. Uh, they won't be a pretty playoff team if they make it, but yeah, it's it's uh it's going to be an, an interesting rest of the season. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, the AFC South, like the best thing for Colts fans, I just feel like is this nobody wants to win this division right now. Exactly. Um, but I will say, before the year, I picked the Jaguars to win this division. So they I, might do uh, it. <laughs> I, I just, Trevor Lawrence thing, man. They have rebuilt the Deshaun Watson, Bill O'Brien era, I think, uh, down there in Jacksonville. And I just, it, quarterback matters. And uh, Trevor Lawrence, if he's a top 10 quarterback within the year, it's just those guys, generally speaking, win their divisions. It's just yeah. uh, the way the NFL works when you have that I think, kind of guy. I think Doug Peterson knows how to use him now. Yeah. So, the, the speed bump that was his rookie year for Trevor Lawrence, I, I think they're on the right track now. I think so. I think so. Uh, we'll end on this, Jake, because we're both uh, Peyton Manning guys right there behind me, the Tennessee yep. variety, you with the Colts variety. What is, I'm curious, what is your favorite Peyton Manning Colt memory? Ooh. Um, yeah, so the, the 2006-2007 AFC Championship mm. at home against the Patriots to put them in that Super Bowl against the Bears – uh, that game just meant so much. It's it's almost uh, it's almost a joke around here. Like that AFC Championship win over the over Tom Brady and the Patriots meant more than winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, that's that's a game that every Colts fan that was around back then will always remember for the rest of their life. That was that was such a good game. They're, the Colts were down like 20, 23 points or something like that in the first half. The K- Patriots were killing them. They came back and uh, rest is history. Had had a huge comeback in the second half, orchestrated by Peyton. Went on to win the Super Bowl. So that that was that was an enormous moment in the city's history. There you go. There you go, Jake. How do the good folks keep up with you and uh, everything you've got going on with your Colts coverage this week? Yeah. So I am uh, one of the co-hosts of the Locked On Colts podcast over on the the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm also the deputy editor of HorseshoeHuddle.com. Uh, we're just churning out content left and right, uh, trying to trying to bring up some interesting and and uh, some tough topics that may not be fun to talk about regarding these Colts. But we'll uh, we'll we'll lean towards the optimistic side when they give us a little more <laughs> to to do so. But no, we're uh, around the clock Colts coverage on those both on both those spots. So we would appreciate you guys following along. There you go. Go subscribe. Check them out today as uh, Jake and the team over at Locked On Colts do great uh, Indianapolis Colts coverage as we try and figure out what the heck is going on with my with my dude. Save Matt Ryan 2022. <laughs> uh, right. there. All right, my friend. Well, uh, thank you so much, and uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.